Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study the scriptures, taking a passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, John Drury. I am Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. We hope this show will be enjoyable for all and edifying and equipping, especially for those who might be preparing lessons or sermons in the upcoming weeks. My guest this week is Aubrey Buster. Aubrey's a first-time guest here on the show, uh, but comes highly recommended from some regular guests, including uh, Amy Peeler, who many of you have gotten to know on the show over the years. Uh, they are colleagues at Wheaton College. So Aubrey teaches uh, the Old Testament there, and she's a specialist in the Psalms. So she's come highly recommended, and for good reason, because uh, she is an excellent guest. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. We, in fact, just finished up uh, our conversation on Psalm 31. I'm recording the intro now, and wow, she's really good. I think you're going to like her. Hope you like her as much as I've enjoyed this hour. I learned a ton from her, and I imagine you will do the same. Uh, so, Yeah. As you're listening to the show, if you're enjoying it, be sure to just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice so that you can pass this show along to others so that they may enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Aubrey. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, would you be willing to read the passage, Aubrey? Yes. This is Psalm 31, and I'm reading from the CEB. This is a translation that I'm really appreciating at this point in time. Great. For the music leader, a Psalm of David. I take refuge in you, Lord. Please never let me be put to shame. Rescue me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Deliver me quickly. Be a rock that protects me. Be a strong fortress that saves me. You are definitely my rock and my fortress. Guide me and lead me for the sake of your good name. Get me out of this net that's been set for me because you are my protective fortress. I entrust my spirit into your hands. You, Lord, God of faithfulness, you have saved me. I hate those who embrace what is completely worthless. I myself trust the Lord. I rejoice and celebrate in your faithful love because you saw my suffering. You were intimately acquainted with my deep distress. You didn't hand me over to the enemy, but set my feet in wide open spaces. Have mercy on me, Lord, because I'm depressed. My vision fails because of my grief, as do my spirit and my body. My life is consumed with sadness. My years are consumed with groaning. Strength fails me because of my suffering. My bones dry up. I'm a joke to all my enemies, still worse to my neighbors. I scare my friends, and whoever sees me in the street runs away. I am forgotten like I'm dead, completely out of mind. I am like a piece of pottery, destroyed. Yes, I've heard all the gossiping, terror all around. So many gang up together against me, they plan to take my life. But me? I trust you, Lord. I affirm you are my God. 
My future is in your hands. Don't hand me over to my enemies, to all who are out to get me. Shine your face on your servant. Save me by your faithful love. Lord, don't let me be put to shame because I have cried out to you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silenced in death's domain. Let their lying lips be shut up whenever they speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. How great is the goodness that you've reserved for those who honor you, that you commit to those who take refuge in you in the sight of everyone. You hide them in the shelter of your wings or presence, safe from human scheming. You conceal them in a shelter safe from accusing tongues. Bless the Lord because he has wondrously revealed his faithful love to me when I was like a city under siege. When I was panicked, I said, I'm cut off from your eyes, but you heard my request for mercy when I cried out to you for help. All you who are faithful love the Lord. The Lord protects those who are loyal, but he pays the proud back to the fullest degree. All you who wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, first we just ask that the prayer of Psalm 31, as it was on the lips of Aubrey Buster just right now, that you would now receive this also as our prayer, prayer for her and myself and for all those listening in, that whatever challenges, burdens, enemies we face, we turn and trust you to make the world right and to rescue us. And along with that, Father, we now ask that as we study these words, this ancient poem, that you would help us, guide us, empower us to be tuned in to its ancient meaning as well as to have its ancient meaning spring forth as a living word to us in our own time. We do not expect to do this through our own ingenuity, though we do ask that you'd bless whatever gifts and training you've granted us, but much more so, Lord, we lean on your Holy Spirit to open the word for us, that it may spring forth in its liveliness. For we trust you and your word and your spirit to be living and active among us. So we ask this all in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus, Messiah, and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Aubrey. So what do you notice here, Aubrey? What stands out to you as you read this familiar text afresh today? Yeah, yeah. And it is like that, isn't it? The Psalms are are familiar at this point, but each reading, each reading, there, there are new insights in them. One of the things that strikes me, and this strikes me about a lot of these Psalms that contain a lament, is the all-encompassing description of suffering. It includes both 
what we might call emotional distress. So the CEB translates this, have mercy on me, Lord, because I'm depressed, because I'm feeling grief. But then these emotions move to bodily suffering, my spirit and my body, strength is failing me, my bones dry up. And then it also moves to a social aspect of suffering, the idea that this psalmist group of what used to be their friends, they're experiencing distance from those people. And then of course, their spiritual suffering, the idea that God had once looked on you in a particular way, but you aren't experiencing that right now. And so the way that the Psalms lay out this multifaceted suffering, I think just provides a lot of opportunities for us to connect the Psalms to our own experience, but also just indicates a kind of scriptural insight into what it's like to suffer as a whole human. Yeah, that's really good. That That's a great fourfold just for all our listeners to tuck away, to keep an eye out for yeah. in the Psalms in general and in themselves and their people. Right, right. Would you say emotional, physical, social, spiritual? Yeah. You, was your list, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. that's very helpful. And you can enter in through any of those, right? So you might come into the Psalms in kind of a religious mindset, but the Psalms help you remember the emotional and the embodied and the social right or vice versa you come in cuz you're you know you're feeling betrayed by someone absolutely so you have that social burden and then it helps you name the the feelings and name the the relation to god that's helpful i wrote that down that's a good little fourfold cuz yeah. we'll say things like the psalms contain all the full range of human emotion i think i that's even right. said that that's this se- this season so we're doing <laughs> psalms all year but like to yeah. actually name those categories is really helpful exactly john calvin's line that it's an anatomy of the entire human person or some something like that all the parts of the human soul i always like that line and and i think it's accurate all of these things are connected for humans right even when we identify one area it usually affects all four whether we'd like to admit that or not a lot of our disorders come through a sort of reductive attention to one without the other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're not always presented in the same order in the Psalms because there is no order. They're just all one, you know, just different aspects of one thing called being human. Yeah. Another thing that I noticed about the Psalm, and this struck me actually today, just as I was reading it kind of for the, for the first time, was the way that it presents faith in God as a public thing. We usually think of our our religious faith and our action of that as kind of a private thing. People may or may not be aware of it. We we do our devotions. We might go to church, but it but it isn't something that's presented publicly. But the way that the psalmist presents their prayer to God, the psalmist says that they're taking refuge in God and they hope that they won't be put to shame. That is, they are publicly declaring their allegiance to God. They are loyal to God. They are putting all of their all of their eggs in that basket, the divine basket. And if God fails them, this is not just going to be a private disappointment. This is going to be something that people witness. And so the, the psalmist is hoping that that prayer might be successful. The psalmist later on says, do this in the sight of everybody, right? Show everyone that trusting in you is a worthwhile endeavor. Do it for your good name, verse 3. These lines that that imply that if your faith comes to nothing, this will not just be a disappointment that that you and your best friends and your immediate family know, but that you've invested everything in this. And I get that from the the shame language that's repeated throughout the psalm. Those lines in the sight of everyone, the idea that you're showing everybody your salvation for your good name. And then, of course, we have that uh, the repeated image of God as rock that shows up throughout the Hebrew Bible. This is 
it's something that's preserved in in hymnody if if you're in a faith tradition that sings hymns, but it's not necessarily an, an image that we use commonly to describe something. It's not a metaphor that's necessarily native native to 21st century English at least, but it's a it's a repeated image in the psalm to describe the assurance that we have in God. Yeah, that's good in that that rock and refuge fortress language also has very strong social connotations. These are the place where where a community gathers. Yes. For protection, for mutual protection. Great. There's even a reference to a siege in 21, right? Yes, yes. I mean, you could take it two ways, and maybe we can get into this in the next segment if we want, but you could take the psalm as a highly personal experience that's then being kind of writ large, or it could be, a very like, you know, social or even political event that's being taken personally <laughs> by ah, like, a, especially by right? a king or a leader right. who would kind of say me, and by me, we mean us, you know, and vice versa. So, and there's probably no way to know for sure, but, uh, and in a way the Psalms aren't poetry and hymnody don't have the singularity of meaning that I mean, no texts are absolutely singular in their meaning, but some are more than others. And I mean, this isn't a letter written to a specific audience or something like that, where so the way the song was being used in worship is as relevant to our interpretation as how it was first composed. So, yeah, the Psalms do kind of invite a multifaceted reading. Like they invite you to say there are lots of doorways into this text from your experience because of the way it uses images and those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, as all human poetry does. I mean, the invention of prose, which is so hard. I, I mean, I still forget this all the time, and I've been studying this stuff for decades, I suppose. But like, it's so hard for re- me to remember that prose was like a later invention. Yeah. Like, yeah. prose is a thing that people came up with yeah. <laughs> to, to make meaning more fixed. That's what kind of, I mean, like when you think of, I mean, it depends what you think of as prose. You and I could debate this perhaps in the second yeah, segment, yeah. but I mean, because I don't think of narrative as as fully prosaic yet, even, you know, like yeah, there's a sense of di- right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. When you yeah. think of what the Greeks were inventing, yeah. you know, when they tried to develop this notion of a kind of dialectical prose, the yeah. it's, its purpose was poetry is too wiggly. We want to say one thing. Poetry deceives. Right, right, right. <laughs> is that Plato? Who, yeah, who Plato, are- who is in some ways one of the the founders of prose at mo- modern uh, Western prose, not modern, but Western prose as we know it. Exactly, exactly. That's that's what I'm trying to get at. And of course, in his time, most narratives were in poetry form. So even when he said poetry, he's also talking about stories. Yes, and of course, the same thing in the ancient Near East, right? The idea that most stories were told in kind of epic poetic forms, right? So the, the Actually, one of the unique features of the Hebrew Bible is this non, some of these non, they're inventing a kind of narrative form, a certain kind of yeah. storytelling yeah. that's akin yeah. to, to, to verbal storytelling, but doesn't look like a text in the same way. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know, why did I go off on that? Oh, just to remind our readers, like, that it's actually a, you know, in the history of humanity, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, you know, last 2,500 years to think of like a text being written by one person trying to communicate one idea. Yes. Right. And the Psalms are clearly predate and resist that kind of 
way of thinking about texts. Yeah, because having one idea limits its use, right? There are truths about the human experience that are multifaceted, that we all kind of experience collectively. We've all experienced suffering. We've all experienced that that feeling of being under siege and needing protection, but it specifically takes different forms for us. Yeah, which is one of the bizarre features of the Psalms is they're like the most personal and the most communal aspect of the canon. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, they're both personal and communal, yeah. And I think because, of course, it probably, you probably have more... uh, percentage of first person singular language in the Psalms is way higher than anywhere else, you know, in many ways. Um, so it invites you to embrace it. And yet these are written by communities for communities. They're not, they're the, in many ways, you know, the least kind of single author that you can imagine, you know, in the sense of like they're shaped and developed, you know? Yeah. Well, even, uh, so a first person pronoun is, and now here we're getting kind of into the weeds, but you brought do up it, the do it. prose. So do the first person pronoun in and of itself is a fascinating thing because it is specific. It refers to a singular individual, but it refers to any singular individual who speaks it. Right, right, right. right. So it invites you to say, I do this and I can say I, but you can also say I, and it already refers to two different people versus if I say, you know, Aubrey does this or John does this, it's third person. Or even we even we, which sounds more inclusive, but actually also yeah. implies said, a kind of right. collective singing. Wheaton College, Wheaton College, it would be a specific collective, whereas right. we could be spoken by anybody. So the I of the Psalms specifies it to a person, but a group of people could say I together. A group of people could say I together, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty is something that some traditions repeat together. Yeah, and we're all saying it together as individuals, but also as a collective. And then also as a kind of collective singular, it's the eye of Israel or the eye of the church. It's a really powerful literary feature that they use those pronouns that both specify you personally speaking this, but are ambiguous in terms of who could actually speak it. Anyone could. That's so insightful. That's so helpful. It's not, it's not my insight. I'm picking that up from someone else, but it's been really it's been really influential for my reading of this. Well, I'm sure everything true that you have to say to us today is not yours. Exactly. Because exactly. <laughs> you're a good, humble scholar. That's, that's the nature of scholarship, right? Is just getting to, to know what everyone else says. So that's- for the rest of this hour, every time I compliment you, just say thank you. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, if you ever want to mention uh, people that have been helpful, that that's fine. But I'm only teasing you because I'm chief of sinners in that regard. The moment I get complimented <laughs> for something... The first words out of my mouth is, oh, that's not mine. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's, from, that's from such and such. I yes, have this like yes. plagiarism anxiety, like that immediately yes. arises. Yes. <laughs> but you know, you can't, you can't walk around with footnotes under your chin as you speak, you know? Yes. Um, well, that, that particular insight I got from Carol Newsom, who I think got it from Jeanette, Jar Jeanette, but. Okay. If, if you want a footnote trail. <laughs> there you go. Carol Newsom. Yeah. And back from there. Oh, that's lovely. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break and come back and, and dig into some p- specific verses. Welcome back. Uh, we're here with Aubrey Buster. This is Fresh Text, and we're looking at Psalm 31. Psalm 31. So a portion of this passage is assigned as a reading, a lectionary reading for Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday this year, just portion 9 through 16. So I'll reread that. Maybe we'll zoom in on that a little bit now. So this is from Robert Alter's translation. 
which our regular listeners have been hearing me use a lot. So this year, but so here goes, grant me grace, Lord, for I am distressed. My eye is worn out in vexation, my throat and my belly. For my life is exhausted in sorrow and my years in sighing. Through my crime, my strength stumbles and my limbs are worn out. For all my enemies, I became a disgrace, just as much to my neighbors and fear to my friends. Those who see me outside draw back from me. Forgotten from the heart like the dead, I become like a vessel lost. For I heard the slander of many, terror all around. When they conspired against me, when they plotted to take my life. As for me, I will trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. O save me from the hand of my enemies, my pursuers. Shine your face on your servant. Rescue me in your kindness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, so zooming in here on this kind of middle section of the psalm, I was wondering if you had any insights on I had a few questions. Oh, yeah. So obviously the, the conspiring and the plotting is probably why the <laughs> lectionary is grabbing this text in connection to, to Holy Week. We don't have to go there right away, maybe, maybe later if we want. But I was interested in my times are in your hand, which is a famous line that's quoted often. Yeah. A lot of folks don't even know it's a psalm. Yes, yes. And I noticed the CB had my future. Yes. In your hand. Was it still in your hand or did it? Yes, my future is in your hands. Yeah, in verse 15 in the English, that one. So I wasn't sure if that was... I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on the best way to capture the original there? Yeah. Yeah. So my interpretation of this term that it can be translated times is probably the best kind of literal translation. The idea that the arrangement of the different seasons in my life are in your hands. Like you set up, we don't know what the seasons of our life will be. We can guess there's some predictable rhythms to the human life but we don't know what each season of life will, we don't know what the limits of say my season as a professor at Wheaton, my, my season as someone who at the moment is enjoying relatively good health, those kinds of moments in our life. We don't know when they begin or when they will end. Those are determined by God. So I think what the CEB is getting at with the idea of future is the unknown part of our seasons, that which we do not know and have no control over, which is the arrangement of the seasons of our life is what God does have control over, including what the psalmist is hoping is their well-being. They're hoping that the season of their suffering will be ending and that one of well-being will be will follow, but that when that occurs is in the hands of God. So is the plural of times here? Yeah, yeah. My times, is that implying kind of seasons or time periods? Yes, that's why I use seasons, because there's different times I like seasons a little better because time, and this is another just kind of modern problem 
Yes. That word has come to have a, you know, thank God for modern physics, but <laughs> right. it's become such an abstract exactly. idea. And exactly. So we have to, well, you, you'll hear this. I mean, heck, I probably have done it where you'll do the cute thing, you know, uh, this is a Greek, Greek thing, but we'll say Kronos yeah. and Kairos and it's like clock time. And then yeah, like, yeah. But then even that I'm kind of like, yeah, but ancient Greeks didn't see it that way. Both of them were time. Neither of them were clock time the way we think about clock. Time. Yes. They didn't have clock time. Like we have to- clock time. <laughs> right. Right. Even Kronos was also the God of death. And so like, yeah. Right. So these really clear cut distinctions usually aren't the ways that categories in human language work anyway. Um, but I think a helpful, so this is a, the same word that's used for season in Ecclesiastes three, which is a somewhat familiar poem. The idea that uh, there's time is for a, this time for that, time, right? There's an eight to be born and an eight to die a time to plant a time to uproot. That's that word here. And so when you think about this psalm in particular, the psalmist is going through a time, a season that is horrible. And the psalmist trusts that every time is in the hand of God. Um, therefore, even though their enemies are avoiding them because they think there's nothing good that is going to happen or come from being in association with this individual, the psalmist doesn't think this at all. So it's eight or eighth or yeah, yeah. H- how do you pronounce that? I want to make sure I, I, my Hebrew pronunciation is terrible. Either one would be fine. Either okay. one would be fine. So it is, it would be eighth if you're, if you're doing the soft pronunciation okay. <laughs> of the top. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's just this tiny, I mean, just, hi, you know, highlighting for our listeners, it's just this tiny little word. Yeah. Okay. Seasons. My times are in your hand. My seasons are in your hand. My futures are in your hand. Okay. That's helpful. That's help. And then the little play on words. Save me now from the hand of my enemies. Absolutely. Right. So. He's almost implying, yeah. That's right. The contrast in who is in charge of your fate, right? When someone is coming against you and has a negative will for you, like an enemy does, if if your fate is in their hands, your season of suffering will continue or might in fact get worse. But if your true fate is in the hands of God, the one who the psalmist affirms loves the psalmist, then you have hope. Then you have hope. Yeah, and verse verse twenty two in the English even kind of implies that there's a worry. There was at least I had thought in my haste, I'm banished before your eyes. Yet you heard the sound of my crisis. So sort of like I'm in the hands of my enemies, but I know that my times are in your hands. So even even being in their hands is a season. It's not permanent. Yes. Uh, so it's almost as if it's not like, am I in their hands or am I in God's hands? It's actually recognized that even when I'm in their hands, I'm still in God's hands. Is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Part of the game that he's playing with language and and faith that there's trying to be expressed here. Yeah. Yeah. Which is of course central to our faith and the faith of ancient Israel. It's something we share the idea that despite what is going on now, we know that our end, whatever that might be is in the hands of God. And so we have hope for a good future. um, Even in the midst of suffering, which is very real, even in, in the midst of experiences where we are in the hands of our enemies right now and it's hurting, but that's not our ultimate hope. Yeah, and even if it's long, it's intrinsically temporary. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had another question. Sorry to just yeah, this is uh, great. Jump around, but so verse twelve in English, eleven in the Masoretic text is is uh, 
I just noticed this today and maybe there's nothing significant about it, but it really struck me for all my enemies. I've become a disgrace just as much to my neighbors and fear to my friends. I'll just pause there for a moment. I, I can't remember how CB did it, but like, is this an intentional kind of like spheres? Like he's got enemies, neighbors, friends, is that, and, and what might be, the significance of that. That's just an observation. I really don't know why, why that matters. Maybe you could illuminate that for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great observation. And here is kind of, it's indicating the strength of the social, um, Oh, what's the term? The, uh, ostr- when you're ostracized and this can be, especially in the ancient world. So you're moving a little bit into to backgrounds, especially in the ancient world, when someone was undergoing something like an illness, or they weren't succeeding economically, all aspects of their life weren't flourishing. This could be attributed to the displeasure of a deity. And so you would view that person as someone who was cursed, someone who had done something, they had sinned, they had made a deity angry, and therefore to be associated with that person would have been a dangerous thing. And so often in the ancient world, that situation of suffering would lead people to move even farther from you, not just the people who are are your enemies, who aren't don't have your well-being in mind, but those who should have a relationship of obligation towards you, those who are either friends, those who you interact with, or even those who might have kinship ties with you, um, those who you would hope would have your back in any circumstance, might avoid you because you become kind of a social pariah as one who is not only suffering on the human level, but might be cursed on the divine level. And so to indicate that all of those people, all of those people leaves means you have no, you have no social network of support left to you. You've no social support network left to you. Even those who were, say, your family, those who were meant to support you through thick and thin have abandoned you. So is the the third word in this set, the the word friends or acquaintances, or is that considered, would that be a more intimate than the word for neighbors there? Is there a progression through the three or is Alter's translation kind of pushing that a little more than the original implies? I'm just curious your take on that. Yeah. And this, so <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. This is in part a debate. So that question, the question that um, Jesus asks, which he picks up from rabbinic discussions, which Who's are my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor? Okay. How close is that neighbor relationship to me is an active debate. So what these terms and here I'm uh, finding it. So it's uh Zarari and then, yes. And then neighbor, to those At least here yes, is yes. So those who dwell near to me. Lisha Ka. Yes. Right? Yeah. And then those who and Yada. Know me. Yes. Yeah. 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 From Yada. Yes. So those who and this is this is interesting. So it's the the enemies, kind of the typical term for those who are who me. And then those who maybe inhabit with me, dwell with me. And then those who know me, this is kind of an interesting term actually to, to be translated friends. So yeah, there would be an intentional connection. Those who are in my immediate vicinity, those, but then those who actually know me, that can be quite an intimate term. It varies in its usage. It's very, sure. Yeah. Das can be a lot of things. It means a lot of things, but those who know me on a human level, let's then contrast it of course, with God who truly knows me later on in the Psalm. You're the one who has, Verse eight, verse eight, verse in, eight in the Hebrew, verse seven, 
Verse 7 in the English. Yes, you saw my affliction. You were intimately connected with my deep distress. So this is the contrast in verse 7 between God who knows your distress. Yes. Then didn't hand you over to the enemy and responded differently. But then those who know me in verse 11 in the English run away. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of Hebrew words for friends. I actually kind of like those who know me. I know. Well, that's I like the participle better. Yes, yeah. I'm actually I'm actually uncertain how common that is. That surprised me when I looked at looked at the Hebrew of that term. Yeah. Yeah. That would it would be interesting to see how in what context that participle is used to indicate friendships, those who know me in a human level. Yeah, well, so I'd say we could do sometimes we'll do live on air word studies and they're very fun. Uh, I, we don't, uh, it's no secret to our listeners. And if it is, I'm sorry to disappoint. This is not a live show. We record way in advance and we don't record in order. So in two weeks, dear listeners, uh, Ken Shank will be on. We did Psalm 150 and we do a live on air word study then, uh, already recorded it though. But that was a word that was used like, I don't know, 12 times. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yada, I just glanced, is 942 yeah. oh, times. Yeah. So we will not be doing an on air <laughs> word study of. <laughs> right, right. But this is that euphemism for sexual intimacy that's used in the famous passage in Genesis 2, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of a, it has a wide range of meaning. It does. It does. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's important to qualify that most of the instances of yada don't relate to sexual intimacy. It refers to a spectrum of knowledge. So it can mean just simply knowing information. It can mean be not, a- not all 942 uses in the right. Hebrew Bible have this like, yes. no, Believe that's not, not how words work. Words don't work Believe like that. Not. Words um, don't work like that. Yeah. But it does indicate those who have some kind of knowledge about you. And even in, even in um, English idioms, we we're able to express that kind of thing. Like, Someone who really knows me is a statement of intimacy that has nothing to do with with physical or sexual intimacy, but one that has to do with, you're not just someone who is in my vicinity, like the the previous term for someone who lives next to you. This is someone who actually knows something about you. So it doesn't have concern, even if it doesn't indicate, if it doesn't have intimate or sexual overtones. So you'd say the the participle here is probably implies something closer than neighbor, uh, yeah, at least in this yeah. context. But like you said, even in you. English, I mean, it's not the word. I mean, I'll pause and just say, so this is from Robert Brandom summarizing yeah. Ludwig Wittgenstein. Okay, sorry, big name, sorry, listeners. But he has this great line where he says, the big insight that Wittgenstein gave us is that the the smallest move you can make in a language game is the sentence. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And like to recognize that, like that one insight is so helpful. Like even when people say like, do you take the Bible literally or not? It's like, no, the question is, what do you take as the basic unit of meaning, the smallest possible unit of meaning? And it's never a word. It's always at least a sentence and, and sentences can be short. In fact, in English, it can be a one and in Greek and Hebrew as well. It can be one word, uh, but it's still a sent a sentence, right? Uh, with an implied subject and verb and all that. So anyway, why did I say all that? Oh, the reason why yada means all these different things is because it's the sentence that's doing the work, not the word. You know what I mean? A word alone can't carry all these different meanings, you know? So if I say that, like, I, I got, I I get the package, you know, I'll get the package. Whereas you could say, he really gets me. It's the same verb. 
it's, but it's the rest of the sentence. It's because a person's different than a package at the store. That's, That's right. what makes it different. Absolutely. And there's no secret con- exactly. connotation. Like, ooh, you have an intimate relationship like with package. the package at the yeah, store, exactly. right? Exactly. What, what metaphor related to packages <laughs> is in play here? Exactly. Wow. You're sleeping with the UPS man? No, it's yeah, just... Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. No, it's just exactly. the same verb in a different sentence does different things, you know? But I think you highlighted the relevant context when you observed that it's a it's an increase in level of relationship. It's an increase in level of relationship. And to know somebody is a high level of relationship. And it really hurts when you're rejected by someone who knows you. Yes, yes. So so I'm I'm camping out on this stuff because it's interesting, A, and you know, content is king. Welcome to the web 2.0 world that we live in. But the main reason is because I think this rejection betrayal stuff is may end up being a place we want to focus in how we would teach and preach and experience this text. Let me ask one more quick thing. Thanks for hanging out on verse 11 so long with me. Yeah. Is it possible that the Hebrew doesn't, the, poetically, the Hebrew doesn't invite this because it's so tight and brief, but you could see two parallels here. You could see the first two as a pair, right? My enemies and my neighbors. That's a kind of near and afar as it were. Oh yeah. And then in the second half, again, you have to leave out the verbs for this to work. So it doesn't really work poetically, but at least conceptually it might help. And that maybe friends is not, or the ones who know me might be, paralleled more to those who see me yeah. outside, right? Yeah. Which is also in the form of a participle. Yeah. Um, but that would also then be a contrast. It'd be like, it, would, they would, it would still be intimate. It makes the same point. It's like those who know me, right, in private spaces versus those who see me outside. Ah. Again, I, I don't think the, the poetry supports the idea that there's a double – these aren't four lines. These are two lines, really. Right. I think, right? I mean, you right. tell me you're the you're the scholar. I'm just winging right. it. I'm just a debutant. I'm wait. Is that the word? Well, <laughs> debutant or <laughs> dilettant? Dilettant. No, debutant. That's like the debutant ball. Sorry. <laughs> dilettant. This is another interesting observation. And if that is the case, if it's two parallel lines, it seems like what would result from that is that those is a is a further emphasis on those who know or see what I am going through because of how horrible it is they want nothing to do with me so it would highlight the fact yes. that they know me and see me in this state of suffering in the state of suffering and that is what makes them avoid me both in terms of the ancient near eastern background where someone who was sick or suffering was viewed as someone against whom the deity had displeasure but also in the sense of at that point, you have nothing as a human to offer anybody. So they see you and they know you and they're like, you know what? You're not worth my time. <laughs> you are more trouble than this is worth because they truly know and see what you're going through. Yeah, well, that's beautiful. Very helpful. Thanks so much. Let's take a quick break and come back for a brief time to explore some sermon starters. Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we are looking at Psalm 31. So let's explore some sermon starters. What what advice might you have maybe in general about preaching on the Psalms? But in particular, like, I mean, there's such a long tradition of bringing the Psalms 
into conversation with the the story of Christ and especially his death. And this time of year, that's very fitting. I know there's risks in that, and we can talk about that too. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about Psalms in general or Psalm 31 in particular and how it all relates to explicitly Christian preaching? <laughs> yeah, I'll begin generally and then maybe move to some specific some specific insights, many of which have come up in this conversation. First, generally, I think the Psalms offer just a rich variety of doorways in for a pastor, a way for the pastor to really specifically tailor their message related to the Psalm to their particular congregation and the needs of the congregation at that moment. As we talked about near the beginning, the Psalms describe difficult situations in a very holistic way, you know, in terms of emotional, physical, spiritual, and relational struggles. This allows the pastor to really discern what the needs of their flock are, if you're shepherding a flock, and to preach a sermon that offers divinely given comfort to your people where they're sitting at this moment in time. And that's using the Psalms as they were meant to be used. We also talked in the course of our conversation about how the Psalms invite this method of application through their use of the first person pronouns, both personal and plural, the I and the we. So it really invites us to make these our own words, but even the way that it uses metaphors and what I call vivid, but vague imagery, right? This powerful embodied imagery, but it's also vague enough to apply to any situation. So the idea that you have, you are uh, in the CEB, a joke to your enemies and to your neighbors and to your friends and to those who see you, invites you to actually maybe imagine particular people or particular communities that are painful to you at the moment. And this isn't a misappropriation of an ancient text. This is actually using the ancient text as it is inviting you to use it. And so I think that gives the pastor powerful leeway to apply it to the particular moment. In in this case, in in a Psalm of Lament, to the particular situation of suffering that your congregation is finding itself in. Uh, so it's kind of an, a pastoral opportunity, pastoral opportunity in that way. Yeah, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah, boy, when I see betrayal language, I just just two days ago, a mentor of mine were meeting and felt almost out of the blue, but you know she's perceptive person. So I, she said, "Do you feel a sense of betrayal?" Mm. And like the thing I was talking about, there was like I didn't see any betrayal in it, but the moment she said it, I was like. Yes. And I was like, I don't know why, you know, because it's sometimes hard to find words. Sometimes we want our expression of emotion to be rational. Right. When that's the point is it's not obeying reason. If it obeyed reason, then it wouldn't be strict emotion. I mean, I think I use feeling as a broader concept that can have reason in it. But there's reasons of the heart, right? But in terms of just sheer emotion, it's just there. It just comes and goes. It doesn't, it's fully embodied and it doesn't have to obey some sort of explanation. So if I don't have like a good reason to feel betrayed, I I won't let myself admit it, you know? Mm, Yes. And and sometimes what's so helpful in the Psalter is to name emotions that might feel unfamiliar at first. This is why I think it's important not to cut out the more troubling parts of the Psalms when we say them and to actually say them, to actually put them on our own lips and say them out loud, both individually and corporately, because we may discover there is a sense of betrayal in my heart that I'm hiding from myself. I'm in denial 
that I feel betrayed. Yeah. And you lash out when you don't name it and release it. So I feel like because that, both because we camped out on it so long, that verse 12 with the betrayal and the connections to the, to the Jesus story. Yes. And that is, and that is, you know, sure an enemy, but it's one who knows him, you know, uh, this isn't the, the one who dipped my bread, but it's the, it has a parallel to, you know, you could see this being quoted at the last supper just as easily as what is that? 63 or 69 where the, he who dipped my bread. I can't remember. Is it 60, 69? I don't remember either. Oh, come yeah. on. You don't have the entire Psalter at your, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. <laughs> yeah. The, the, Jesus quotes a, or the, or the narrator in the book of John, I think yeah. quotes a Psalm. Right. You can almost see this one fitting that as well. Absolutely. And this gives us, I think it gives us a journey to go on both just in this Psalm, we see that the Psalm moves you from identifying that feeling of betrayal and giving words to it, but then it moves you to God who never betrays the God who also knows you in verse seven, but is the one who will demonstrate faithful love I have in the CEB, or I think Alter used kindness, that very significant Hebrew word hesed. There it is. I was waiting for you to say it. (laughs) Who is perfectly faithful and loyal to you, the one who will never betray you. And then we also can connect it. We can enact that journey by then identifying ourselves with God in betrayal, which is a movement that in a lot of ways goes beyond what this Psalm goes to. When we find ourselves outside of the outskirts of accepted society, with Jesus. So we're in this space, we're feeling alone, betrayed by those who we held most dear, but we're actually not alone in that space at all. We are with Christ, who also is undergoing this betrayal from his closest friends. And that's really, it's, it gives us a place to move from that identification of pain towards a movement accompanied by God to some form of healing, hopefully. Yeah. And it's a move the Psalm itself doesn't make though the prophets already are making it right. The prophets invite a kind of empathy for God, right? Like to, to empathize with God's sense of betrayal. And in a way, the Psalms and the prophets kind of come together in Jesus death as he's he's both God with us and, and also us with God. Right. And yeah, that I'm suddenly thinking of a a phrase, an awkward moment at the end of John chapter 14, a passage seldom commented on this would, it'd actually be really fun. This is just a sermon pitch to our listeners who are preparing. You could, you could use this little passage. End of chapter 14, Jesus says, you will all leave me and I will be alone, but I'm never alone. Mm. The father's with me. And, and it's very tempting to try to like clean up the apparent contradiction there. But he really is, from a certain point of view, to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, from a certain point of view, he is alone. Yeah. Because he is not referencing God's omnipresence here. Like this is not – he is alone. He is abandoned by his fellow humans. That That is loneliness. That is aloneness. That's right. That's right. But he's saying, but from another point of view – he doesn't say God's everywhere from another point of view, the father is always with me. Right. So s- somehow, 
And then by being drawn into that presence with Christ, we have the same kind of parallel that even when we feel all of that betrayal, in fact, you know, Christ is hiding even in that sense, even yeah. that betrayal. And I want to build on that with this image, uh, verse 16, the end of the lectionary portion, the invitation to shine for God to shine God's face on your servant, because this also specifies how God views you when God is with you. Because our fear when we're undergoing betrayal or rejection by other humans is that even if God is with us, maybe we'll see that rejection in God too. That's a, it's a fear in the back of our minds. And this phrase to shine the face, it is an image that I think we can all identify with when you walk into a room and people are really excited to see you and they look at you and, uh, you know, we're on Zoom here, the podcast listeners won't be able to see it, but you know what I'm talking about when you walk in and people's eyes light up and they smile and they're genuinely glad that you appeared, that is when their faces are shining upon you. And so this statement that not only is God with you, but God is happy to be with you. When God looks at you, God's eyes light up, to use the English metaphor, I think is also a significant movement to make. Yeah. And I I think that's actually how we should translate that, you know, to match an idiom for idiom. You could literally do it right there in verse 16, you know, you know, even just light up your face. Exactly. Let your eyes light up when you see your servant or something. Let your eyes light exactly. up would be an, a, an accurate translation of the idiom. Yeah. Yeah. Because actually a strictly wooden translation of an idiom is in some sense, not even a translation at all, you know, in some sense, you know, right. uh, it's so funny. I'm sure you've had this. Exp- well, tell me, maybe your story's different, but I've had the experience of like, as I got into biblical languages and becoming, and then reaching for these wo- more, wo- more, more and more wooden translations, so that I'm reading like the old NASB that doesn't even sound like English, right? And then, and then you start as you actually learn the language. Then you have this journey back where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm gonna do that, I'll just read the flippin' Hebrew, right? Like yeah. that's where the action is. Right. But I want right. my English translation to actually sound like English. I don't know. Here you are, an Old Testament scholar reading the CEB. I have a feeling you've been on a similar journey, no? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, that phrase, "what this really means," goes on and oh, makes me want to puke. Yeah. <laughs> what's different thing? What this really means is like, no. What this really means is understandable language to somebody, right? An idiom that's familiar to them. What this really means. So, yeah. Absolutely. It, it is the arc, the arc. It's a wonderful arc to travel. I wish it on everybody, but it's also nice to get to the end of that arc. You're right. It is a journey. You don't, and I don't want to, I mean, I was kind of making fun of my earlier self. So dear listener, if you're oh. in that place, press on. It's a lovely journey. It, <laughs> Enjoy it your inner linear Bible. <laughs> exactly. Enjoy your old NASB. Yeah, we'll, yeah, see, yeah. we'll see you. It's awesome. The CEB at the end. We'll don't read it. Don't public. read it out loud in public. Come on, it's got to sound like English. <laughs> you know, if especially if you're not using the eye. Part of it is becoming a student. When study is associated for us with the eye and reading, looking, and it doesn't have to have the rhythms of English to work with the eye. But you know, when you're reading something in public for others to listen to it's got to have the rhythms of English or it just doesn't work or whatever language it's in. At least I think so, but. Right. Well, that work is pastoral. It's the pastors yeah. have to bring these ancient texts to life for their particular congregation. 
Well, that's, I mean, in many ways you could literally shape a sermon around, you know, you could, you could really just camp out on a couple key vivid, but vague images, the image of the disgrace, the betrayal, Jesus and his experience of that. And maybe a specific story for you in your life or the lives of others in your congregation that would express that, that you're ready to share. And then, then flip it around. And I mean, I really feel like even just those two texts alone, then the shift in 1516, the times in the hand and the shining of the face and all that, specifically that image of when someone lights up in the room, exegete the text. And I think maybe, especially if it's the, the Sunday before Easter, to not speak of the resurrection as his shining his face, but actually that even as he's, even as Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though the song, the songs that we sing say he turned his face away. No, he didn't. Hey. He's actually looking down with a f- shining face, hey. receiving, to use the language of Hebrews, receiving his sacrifice, you know? Absolutely. To that, that phrase that God is still looking with a shining face upon Christ on the cross is a necessary correction to a lot yeah. of our that's And then do the same, again, another story in our own life of experiencing that, that shiny face. I don't know. That's a little sermon outline. If anybody's listening to this late on a Saturday night, you know, run with it and don't give us credit. <laughs> Just do it. Just own it. Make it yours. Tell your own stories. Run with it. No shame in that. Oh, Aubrey, thank you so much. It's the first time for being on the show. You are a fabulous guest. I won't make you commit on air to come again, <laughs> but I will ask you on air. I will definitely okay, want great. you back. You're very good. I would good. love to come back. I would love to come back. Gotcha. You want to get on the calendar on air right now? I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm committed. <laughs> well, we're doing Psalms all year, so we'll really need you. Uh, although I'm sh- I can tell right now you're, you'd be a lovely uh, guest uh, for any biblical text, but definitely in the Psalms, we're getting you in your, in your beloved space. So uh, thanks so much to our listeners. We appreciate you so much. Uh, thanks uh, to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Uh, thanks to all those who get the word out about the show privately or on social media or whatnot. And especially to our patron saints who support the show. If you'd like to do that yourself, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. Five ways to support the show there. With that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>